Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, We are in the middle of a series on the fruit of the Spirit, which is found in Galatians chapter 5, but we're using the letter of James, the brother of Jesus, uh, as kind of the foundational text as we talk about each of these each of these characteristics of God's work in our life. And so our scripture reading this morning comes from that passage in Galatians 5, but also from James chapter 1 and then James chapter 5, uh, where he introduces the theme of steadfastness in each of those places. And so follow along with me, if you would. It'll be on the screen behind me or on your screen at home, or you can pull out your Bible and try to go there. It's printed for you on the back of the, worship, uh, on the, back of the outline that's provided in your worship folder as well as we read together. Hear God's word. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. And then from James. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. James is writing to a people who are going through all kinds of trials. That's chapter 1, verse 2. And there's no escaping this even for us. I mean, consider the time that we're coming out of, what we've been going through for these number of months now, but even more, just what life is like being in the world. And here's the problem. Modern American society is the worst in history for helping people get ready for suffering. Which is why you see the unraveling of our culture in some ways around the suffering, even though it's, it's, you know, it's major, but it's not earth-shattering, we're falling apart. Nearly every culture before us through the centuries, believed that this life was not all there is, that there was this life and then there was the life to come. And so this life was short and full of trouble and you just were armed with that expectation. And the result was that people were able to deal with suffering when it came in more profound ways than we are. But in our secular, materialistic world, this world is all there is. And so suffering should be avoided at all costs. And if you suffer, you should sue. Because somebody's at fault. It's just a matter of figuring out who it is. Somebody's to blame. Everything's supposed to be good all the time. I mean, this is what the advertisers tell us. This is, what our, this is the cultural narrative we live under all the time. And it's simply not true. The Bible says nothing about that. And so the key is not to figure out how to life hack your way around trials. You've got to be able to meet trouble when it comes with character. Character is what gets you through crisis. And we're living in a moment when character is the very thing that's in crisis. 
But what we can be assured of is that Christianity, and I say this if you're not a Christian and you're here, this is my apologetic for why you should be here. If you're listening at home, this is why you should keep listening because Christianity provides us resources, unique resources that can make us into people of sufficient depth to get through times like this, to sail through times like this. People defined by joy and peace and patience. Patience uh, is perhaps the most important of these, and it's our theme this morning, because it's the most important because trials have a certain design. We're told here in verse 12, if you see there, that they are a test, and that word has connotations with smelting. And if you know what smelting is, and smelting, smelting is the process of, of taking ore and applying heat to it, and what you're doing as you apply the heat is it's burning away all of the impurities, and then the precious metals are left behind. But you've got to endure the heat so that it can do its work. And that's the, that's the God-designed intention of trials that come. And so if you notice, that word blessed comes up there in chapter 1, verse 12. It also comes up in chapter 5, verse 11. But there's a certain formula that leads to that. Have you seen, I make fun of the hashtag blessed? Right? It's, my, it's the best. If you, re, if you want to know what the true biblical hashtag is, here's, here's biblically hashtag blessed. Suffering plus patience equals hashtag blessed. That's what James says in James chapter 1, verse 12. And then again, because it's hard to believe, but in, in, in 5.11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast when trials come. And so we need desperately this characteristic of patience. And that's our theme. The fruit of the Spirit, patience. And so we're going to talk about this along three lines. The first, we want to define what, what the Bible means and what we mean, we mean by patience. Secondly, we want to show you the need for it, why it is that we so desperately need to press in and ask God to do this work in our lives. And then thirdly, of course, where it comes from or the power source to become a person of patience so that you can sail through trials too. So the definition and the need and the power for patience first. Let's talk about definitions. Look at James 5, verses 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, he says. So three times there is this word, patience. And it is a word that means long-suffering. It's actually translated in the older translations, long-suffering. And so it is the supernatural ability to endure a long-suffering. And all the parents of small children said, amen. So it's the supernatural ability to endure a long suffering and not lose your courage, not quit, but to stay joyful and hopeful over a long period of time against every setback that comes, despite all of the disappointments that you have to walk through. Love, we're told in 1 Corinthians 13, is patient. It's long suffering. Because, and think about it, so love, the, 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 um, the conditions of love are suffering. Think about it, because it says there also, love does not insist on its own way, and love never quits. So if you never quit insisting on your own way, guess what? That's exhausting. That, there's, there's, that's full of suffering, and so marriage and parenting and friendship and every relationship, being a member of a church, all of these things are there full of amazing highs, but also deep pain because we sin against one another in profound ways all the time. And patience is the ability to keep going, to keep going with people 
in your life despite the hurt and the frustration and the emotional or even physical exhaustion of the relationship. And to not just go through the motions, but to keep your heart in, to keep showing up, to keep you know, living vulnerably and putting your heart out there it takes tremendous courage. Now the synonym for patience in, in these texts is the word steadfastness. And it's found in both chapter 1, verse 12, and also in, in chapter 5, verse 11. And so there at the beginning of James and also at the end. And the language in those two verses is so similar. It's almost word for word. And, and so all the commentators say it forms what we call an inclusio, which is a literary device that's used to frame content. So just like in writing class, you're taught to state the thesis in the introduction and then to restate it in the conclusion as a way of, because the main idea of everything in between is what you're stating in those two things. Well, that's what James is doing here. The letter is about, this letter is about how to be steadfast when the various trials come. And I love, I love this word uh, because I see so little of it in me and it's just been a constant prayer in my life that God would develop this in me. I, I love the word. It's a Greek word that means to stay in place no matter what. No matter how hard it gets, you don't quit. You just, you stay there and, and you don't give up, you just stay put. And the illustration I would use is when I was a kid, I'm a, I'm a native Floridian, and when I was a kid, I, we would go to the beach, you know, all the time. And I used to always, I, I preferred to go as, as a child to the East Coast than the West Coast. Now as an adult, I'm in my right mind and I realize the West Coast is far superior to the East Coast. You know, East Coast, this is how I put it, East Coast is like burnt out 80s rock and roll, like Aerosmith, right? West Coast is Jimmy Buffett, so the older folks like appreciate the Jimmy Buffett side. But when I was a kid, I wanted to go to the East Coast, and the reason was is because I loved the waves. The waves were an adventure, and it was fun. And one of my favorite things to do was to always kind of test my strength as a kid to kind of wade out into the surf and just, did everybody, anybody ever do this? Like, just, just let the waves come and like steel yourself against the waves as they came and like try to stay put and <clears throat> like punch back against the waves. So, that, But of course, then one would come and it would be too much and, you know, flip you over and you'd tumble through the surf, but that's what it means to be steadfast. To be steadfast is to plant yourself there and kind of steel yourself against whatever, whatever force might come to push against you. But no matter what comes, you stay in place. It doesn't push you off your spot. Now, James gives us an example of patience and steadfastness. Down in verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, Job, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And isn't it great that we just happen to be reading Job right now in community Bible reading? And if you don't know the story of Job, Job was a righteous man who committed no sin. He had no reason for God to turn against him. And yet Satan, you know, came to the Lord and asked to tempt Job and God gave permission and this man lost everything. In, in the span of just a day, he lost all of his wealth and he lost all of his children. He lost everything, even his own health and, and physical wellness. And yet in all of that loss, he did not waver. And there's one point in the story where his wife even comes to him and, and she says, and she tries to persuade him to give up on his faith. And yet he kept going with God. And then his friends come and start to do really bad theology with him and just everything starts to unravel. And at, no matter what happens around him, he keeps going on with the Lord. In all of his loss, it says, he did not sin. He grieved and he worshiped, but he never quit. And it's a remarkable story. It's an example of the kind of endurance that is possible. Now, it's not a common thing. It's a supernatural thing. I've actually been reading a book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which I, I couldn't recommend more. It's about how 
we are increasingly seeing, especially among younger generations in our culture, an intellectual and emotional fragility that is crippling our civic life. How our school systems and our way of life no longer mass produce people of moral and intellectual fortitude. But Christianity does. Patience is the fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the telltale signs that you're being cultivated by God. That His power and His person is in you. The Spirit's not just a power, remember. He's a person. And so the fruit of the Spirit are the characteristics of His personhood becoming true of you also over time. He's making you like Him. But it's a long, slow, agonizing process. It takes time. But doesn't all the good stuff in life take time? There's no such thing as a microwavable good meal. So patience is the attribute, but waiting is the action. You see that in 5.7. See how the farmer waits? He says, be patient. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. So the farmer there can plant and water and worry over his fields, but he can't make anything grow. All he can do is wait for the rains to come. And if the rains don't come, then all of his work was for nothing. And this puts us in the right frame of mind when it comes to our lives. We can do all that we can do, but we cannot make life go in our own strength. If God doesn't come and do what only he can do, then it's all for nothing. Unless the Lord builds, the one who builds, builds in vain. And so all of our working is ultimately waiting. We need patience. Patience is the ability to go through hard times and not be shaken, not quit, because, but because we continue to trust in God and wait for him. And so... That's what it is, but secondly, let's talk a little bit about why we need it so badly. And I want to make a number of observations from these texts here, okay? Just a number of thoughts about why, why it is that we really need to ask God to cultivate this attribute in us as well. And the first observation I would make is that this world that we live in was created good, but it has gone so wrong because of human sin and rebellion. And it is being redeemed. We are being redeemed, the world is being redeemed, but, but not yet, don't forget not until the Lord comes again. And so notice that James calls for patience, and both times it's in reference to the consummation. So look at chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, he says. And then again, he reiterates in chapter 5, verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Isaac Watts wrote about the joy that comes when the earth receives her king. It's my favorite Christmas song. No more will sin and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground because he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Amen? But not yet. There's still, I mean, Molly is an amazing gardener, if you didn't know, but your gardens are still full of thorns and weeds, and they will be until the earth is redeemed. The world is still under wrath and curse because of sin. And I make this point to say we need patience. Because God is making all things new, but little by little, and not completely until Jesus comes again. And we might make gains in this world, but not without also tasting the futility that still clings to everything under the sun. Every endeavor to push back evil will be full of sweat and blood and tears, and so we need patience. Because without patience, we will too easily become discouraged and quit. Or, to guard our hearts, we'll become idealistic and demanding. 
And just to speak into one thing going on in our society about this, I mean, I want you to know I'm all in for racial justice, but we can't be naive about how long and how hard the fight for justice will be. Nor that we will not fully see it realized until Jesus is king of the whole world. And I worry about how explosive it seems every new incident becomes in our culture because the idealism around the issue is just out of touch with reality. We are never going to achieve a perfect record against racism. It's not an excuse. It doesn't mean we shouldn't fight, but it's a plea for patience. There are no quick fixes. We have to suffer long and keep going and, and not quit until Jesus comes again. That's what it takes. But secondly, without patience, as we endure this kind of long obedience in the same direction that, become, that becomes tiring over time because we're finite creatures, without patience then we're in danger in the process of that of falling prey to the sin of grumbling. And you'll notice he brings this up here as well. Because these hard things of life can just go on and on and eventually wear you down. And so James writes in chapter 5 verse 10, you also be patient Establish your hearts, do not grumble against one another. And so what happens when you, when you lose patience, the opposite of patience is to be pushed over into this spirit of grumbling. Now don't you imagine that Job was tempted to grumble? If anybody ever had reason to grumble. His wife came to him at one point and said, Job, grumble and die. That's the best course of action for you. And his response to her was, woman, <laughs> well, kind of. I mean, that's, that's the feel you get when you read the text. He's like, you speak as one of the foolish women. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And then it says this in Job chapter two, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. He did not charge God with wrong. And that's what a grumble is. A grumble is being worn down by the hard things of life so that you begin to charge God with wrong. And the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote about this in his book, A Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which you know I come back to over and over again, but he said that a grumble is rebellion. It's a rebellion. So when I was a kid and my parents would tell me to do something I didn't want to do, I know I didn't have a choice because in my house, if you disobeyed, there were consequences, okay? And so I knew I didn't have a choice. If I didn't want to be punished, I had to do it. But I learned very quickly that I didn't have to do it joyfully. I could complain. And the complaint was such a temptation because it was the only sovereignty I had left. The complaint was my way of saying to my parents, you're wrong to make me do this, and I know better than you, and I should be in charge, not you. See, the grumble, the grumble is a challenge to God's sovereignty. It's putting God on trial. It's judging God, which is uh, the irony James point out, that those who judge God like this are the ones that will ultimately be judged. But here's the problem. Practically, if you give in to grumbling, it wears you down because it, it begins over time to distort your perception of reality. What happens when you really give in to a grumbling spirit is the grumble itself begins to suck all the sweetness and the goodness out of all of God's mercies in your life. And it begins to make the hard stuff even harder because it, it enlarges all of the difficulties and the crosses and it, and it uh, reduces all of the good things. And Martin Luther, I provided this quote for you here. Martin Luther wrote about this. This is, this is just a quote that has been really uh, profound for me over the years. And I wanted to share it with you. But he talked about this. He said, uh, the difference between a, a person of supernatural strength and, and possession and just a natural person who 
you know, a patient person and an impatient person, if you want to put it that way. And he said this. He said, if there's a cross where the spirit of God prevails in the heart, the man or woman will wonder that it is no greater. And if there's a mercy, he wonders at God's goodness that he has granted so great a mercy. Listen to this. The spirit extenuates all evils and crosses and magnifies and amplifies all mercies. That's the way we should live. All mercies seem to be great and all afflictions seem to be little, but the flesh does the opposite. It lessens God's mercies and amplifies evil things. A godly man wonders at his cross that it is no more. A wicked man wonders his cross is so much. Oh, he says, none was ever so afflicted as I am. Be careful of grumbling. It can distort your perception of reality. The truth is that God's mercies, God's mercies are always more, as we just sang. But there's one more thing before we move on to, to kind of finishing up. There's one other sin that is the opposite of patience that James warns us about. We need patience because life is hard in this fallen world and it's easy to give in to grumbling. Uh, but there's also one other thing, and that is that we have to be careful to not um, shift into blame shifting. If you don't develop patience, you'll go through life blaming others, even blaming God, and not, take, not taking responsibility for things. And this is what James talks about in chapter 1 in those verses, where he says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Verse 13, and then he goes on to describe the opposite. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. So James is describing the person who says, this is all God's fault. They lay all the blame for the trial they're going through at God's feet. And it's true. Christians believe in, the, in that God is sovereign over all things, including, including suffering. But be careful how you use the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It doesn't remove human responsibility. The truth is that God is in the saving business. We're the one that make the messes. And blame shifting is dangerous because it fails to realize how sin works. So James takes the opportunity, and gosh, these verses really demand their own. We need to come back to this at some point in the not-too-distant future and really go through this slowly. But James gives us here the slow-motion instant replay of every sin. The upon further review of every, of every one of life's moments. And what he, the conclusion he comes to is that God is not temptable and therefore he cannot tempt anyone. And so the problem is not with God, it's not even with Satan. See, James doesn't bring him up here and if we're not careful, we can blame everything on Satan and that's a way of blame shifting not taking responsibility also. No, the problem is me and you. That's what we're told in these verses, that we do not just sin, we're sinners. Before the acts of sin, we're full of the sinful desires we're told there. We're sinners before we sin, and these sinful desires, they're active in our lives all the time, and we're constantly being, verse 14, lured and enticed. And I don't have to explain the imagery there to a bunch of Floridians, do I really? I mean, you know what a fishing lure is. It's a fake that has a hook. And the best example of this, and we could give many, but probably the best example would be pornography, something like pornography. It's a fake and it's a hook. Sinful desires eventually conceive and give birth to sinful actions. And the sinful desire in this case, in the case of pornography, is an over-desire for sexual gratification or a warped desire for physical connection void of emotional connection 
or wrong desire for sex outside of marriage, and these sinful desires give birth to sinful actions, which eventually create sinful patterns and habits and lifestyles that lead to death. All kinds of painful consequences, spiritual fallout. And what James is saying, and this is hard, this is hard, but here's what James is saying. He's saying the trials that we go through, they are not God's fault. They are the spiritual fallout of our own sinful desires that have conceived and given birth to sinful actions, and we're reaping what we've sown. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying it's a one-to-one correlation. This is happening in my life because of this thing that I did. That's not the way it works in most cases. In some cases, I suppose. But most of the time, trials are just a part of the world. But we must not forget that it is a world that we have made. God made everything good. And we're the ones who messed it up. And the lesson is blame shifting doesn't get you anywhere. It will only increase your misery. And it's out of touch with reality. If you're blaming others and not taking responsibility for things in your life, you're deceived there, chapter 1, verse 16. You're a fool. And it's the opposite of patience, James says. There's this contrast between verse 12 and verse 13. So patience is taking responsibility, dealing with the consequences, looking for God, looking to God for the solution and waiting however long it takes for him to sort out the mess that we've made. He says there, establish your hearts, James 5, 8. Be patient, establish your hearts. He said, what you, you've got to establish your hearts, get yourself put in place. And the only way I know to explain that to you is, uh, you know, when you're trying to hang, it's a, it's a joke in my house. We actually bought this really pretty heavy mirror that sat in our garage for three months because I was scared to death, scared to death to try to hang it on the wall. Because everything, I'm a pastor, not a carpenter, everything I try to hang on the wall eventually like falls off the wall. I don't, I don't, I'm just, I need help. I don't know. I can't seem to get the anchors put in and everything, because, right? So when you're going to put something on the wall that's heavy, you've got to anchor it into the wall and you've got to get the screws in there and it's got to be firm so that when you put the weight on it, it stays put there. That's what James is saying. Establish yourself. You know, anchor yourself to the right place. Drill in as far as you've got to be until you're put in place and you can bear the weight that life brings upon your soul. And the way you do that is by having the right theology. The power for patience, where does it come from? And the answer the Bible gives is that you have to know that the ultimate why for everything that happens in life, for all the bad things, the ultimate why is found in God's character. Now, we tend to try to comfort ourselves in hard times by figuring out what God is doing. And instead, we should take strength from who he is. So the Bible talks about God's works and his ways. You'll read this in the Psalms, especially God's works and his ways. And his works are always in sync with his ways. Whatever God is doing in any particular moment is always consistent with his character. And the problem is that the breadth of his works is often beyond us. We're just too small to comprehend this massive thing that God is doing. But he has made known his ways. He doesn't often explain what he's doing, but he has revealed his heart. And James is correcting our wrong ideas about what God is like here, ultimately. God doesn't tempt, he says. You've got it all wrong. The bad stuff doesn't come from him. Just the opposite, chapter 1, verse 17. This is the right way to think about these things. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of changing. So every good thing, all the happy endings, they all come from God. There's not a single good thing in life that, that in your life that did not come from him. It's all gift. And you're not deserving of any of it. He is fundamentally generous. You have a Father in heaven whose love language is gift-giving. 
And that will never change. Because he doesn't change. So the bad stuff, James says, take a look in the mirror. But the good stuff, look up to the heavens. Now he does the same thing when we return to this theme in chapter 5. He, he, re, he corrects our theology. He says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Look at this. This is so important. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, the why. And maybe you came this morning and you're going through something and your question is why. I just don't understand. Why is God doing this? Why is he letting this happen? Or there's some pain in the past and that's the lingering question. And here he says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, this awful thing that happened to Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, the why. And do you see how he finishes it? You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So when you're going through suffering, the real suffering is the feeling of being abandoned by God. If you're not a person of faith, it's the way suffering can make it feel like pitiless indifference is at the wheel of the universe, but there's no, that there's no meaning, no why, and that's what makes the trial unbearable. But Christianity offers a why, and the why is the character of God, not his works, but his ways. The why is not found in figuring out what he's doing so much as figuring out what he's like. It's found in knowing him, knowing what he's like in everything that he's doing. And James says God's purpose, God's why, every time in everything he does is compassion and mercy. That the real suffering and suffering is the feelings of condemnation that it brings. I'm being punished. I deserve this. God is judging me, right? And my concern is the theology that we can subtly begin to think of God as overly stern and condemning. And if that's what you believe he's like, you'll wilt under trial. You will not have the patience you need to push forward. But the way he reveals himself to us in the Bible is actually very different. When he shows Moses his glory in Exodus 32 through 34, it's his goodness and not his greatness that he puts on display. And so the first thing Moses learns about God is that he's compassionate and merciful because that's his deepest heart. I mean, the Bible talks about God being provoked to judgment. Not once does it say that he's provoked to love or provoked to mercy. So Dane Ortland has written, his anger requires provocation, but his mercy is pent up and ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, and divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. He is a God who delights in mercy, wrote Jonathan Edwards, but judgment is a strange work. And so the key to patiently enduring in trials is to learn to let your natural assumptions about who God is fall away and be replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. And Job's story is a help for this too because it points to another innocent sufferer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Job felt abandoned by God. His friends told him it was on account of his sins. Jesus Christ was truly abandoned, but for our sins... Job endured, but he did complain a bunch. Jesus endured. Hebrews says that he did so with joy because his delight is in mercy. And so Jesus Christ is the assurance that what James says here is true. If you believe in him, in this one who came to die for you, then when you go through trials, it won't be because God has abandoned you. He can't abandon you. On the cross, Jesus descended into the hell of God forsakenness so that no matter how bad it gets, you can be confident that God is for you, not against you. That's the promise of the gospel. Isn't that great news? And that's how you face the hard stuff and go through it. Because the why, see, the, the gospel assures you that the why is always mercy. And therefore, we don't have to know why. 
We don't have to understand his works because we know his ways. And God's works always conform to his ways. And so knowing that, we can, like Job, out of the patience that we learn, say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen? Pray with me if you would. So Father, we just have to stop and confess we're, we're not there, many of us. We're not there. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take ourselves in hand and we're going to sing our way there. And so, Father, as we sing these songs here at the end, uh, we may sing because we feel it or we may sing until we feel it, but we, we offer this worship to you as a response now to the good news of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ, but to the greater news that it all springs from your love and mercy and compassion for us, the great news of what you're like, of who you are, and we can trust your character. And so would you continue to teach us? Would you continue to shape us? Would you come, Holy Spirit, give us tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise because he is worthy, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know what that means? The Bible says not one single sparrow will fall to the ground this next week and die apart from the Father's will. There is not a pothole on Dundee Road or a nail that might make its way into your tire that is not designed by God for your good. That's what these words mean. And so go into this week knowing that, that the one who is perfect in love is prepared for both his glory and your good because those two things are connected. <laughs> and that's what, this, that's what this benediction means, to receive it and then go in the power of it uh, to live a life patiently waiting on the Lord as he does his good work. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.